Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. Do you find mainstream feminism not relevant to your life? Too white, too liberal, doesn't deal with class. Ever been accused of being a feminist killjoy? Well, maybe your feminism is intersectional. Intersections! Coming soon to 3CR. A new program about local and global intersectional feminism in action. A deeper look into how contemporary intersectional lives are lived. Starting on the 2nd of October on Sunday at 5.30. Intersections! You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR 855 AM. My name is Ruth Hagen-Gruber, coming from Germany, and happy to be here. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Well, today we have a live guest in the studio. We've got Penny Mackerson, and we're going to be speaking about adoption. So welcome to the program, Penny. Thank you, Beth. What was it that inspired your interest in adoption? Well, um, firstly, because I'm adopted myself, um, uh, obviously under pre-1980s arrangements, so a closed adoption, um, and I became a social worker and I've worked in child protection and um, and child welfare and including adoption, inter-country adoption, uh, for about 12 years, ending in 2013. Um, and um, and now um, I'm doing my uh, PhD studies in an area very related to adoption, um, permanency for children who have been removed from their families for reasons of child protection and it's deemed that it's not safe for them to be returned home, so permanent alternative families are being sought for them. Right, now you've also been involved with a group called Vanish. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, well, Vanish um, is the Victorian Adoption Network for Information and Self-Help. It was established in 1989, um, subsequent to the 1984 Adoption Act, which opened up adoption, um, the records to um, adult adopted people who uh, wanted to uh, find their mothers, fathers, their uh, biological family, Um and we provide information and support and help do the search uh, process after applicants have gone to the relevant adoption information service and got their records. Um, the identifying information is used to help them connect. So Vanish has been doing that work since, I think, funded continuously by the Victorian government since 1990. So We've helped thousands and thousands of um, adopted people reconnect. Um, I'm one of them. I searched in um, 
1997, having got my records in 1990. So um, my experience was very positive and uh, when I left the Department of Human Services, left the inter-country adoption program, I volunteered my services basically to vanish and um, joined the Committee of Management and am now the chair. Great. Now, what are some of the complex issues associated with being adopted? There are many. Um, I think the first thing to realise is that adoption doesn't... is The beginning of the journey is when the adoption order is made, whether it's made under um, it was you know a past adoption or one under current arrangements where the adoption can be no can be open, it's it's a journey. It's lifelong, and people will have lifelong needs. So not just the adopted person, but obviously the relinquishing parents or the parents who were separated from their child. For the adopted person, identity is a really important thing, um, and it's something uh, that. Most people, I think, take for granted. It's a it's a, cha- a task that people see is uh, happens mainly in um, teenage years, but for adopted people, it's often lifelong, um, and that's connected. There's a number of reasons for that, um, and also it's connected. The main thing it's connected with is contact or knowledge of and or contact with biological family. So under open arrangements, which we've been having since 1984, uh, there's usually been an arrangement for contact, might not be frequent but regular, with um, biological family members. What we found over the years is that, in fact, those arrangements have dropped away um, and people have lost contact with their biological family just as in the case before 1984 when adoptions were closed and there wasn't contact as part of that arrangement. Um, so, and with adoption again, whether it was before 84 or after, uh, it cancels, part of the adoption process is that it cancels the original birth certificate, the adoptive parents' names go on the birth certificate as if the child was born to them, and if the adoptive parents don't, aren't keen on having contact with the biological family or they don't even tell their child if the child was a baby, um, it can still end up being quite a closed arrangement and and the child won't know their whole story. Um, And the experience is that whether it's a positive adoptive upbringing or not, um, at some point there will be a trigger and the adoptive person will want to reconnect with their biological family. So well, why do you think the the um, connection with the a biological family is, you know, sort of not continued? Are there, are there any sort of particular reasons for that occurring? Yes, well, there hasn't been much in the way of post-adoption support services. It's been assumed um, for a long time that once a child's adopted, well, the family will have been assessed, they'll be fantastic, away they go, um, it'll all be fine. But in fact... Um, relationships are complex and being separated from a family under any circumstances is complex and the child, you know, wants to know um, and wants to have contact generally at some point. So um, why does it break down so soon after adoption orders are finalised? I think think the adoptive parents will 
often um, interpret that the contact between their child and the biological family isn't positive. And of course, it's distressing if if the child is seeing people that it's that he or she isn't allowed to live with anymore. Um, and there can be and the very reasons that led to the adoption in from the um, biological family's perspective may indeed be the same sort of reasons that makes the um, contact difficult. For example, they just don't have a lot of money. They're disorganised. They can't get there. Um, you know, they're not encouraged. They're not supported. So the same sorts of reasons can inhibit um, ongoing contact, and um, and the adoptive parents have the power to simply discontinue the contact if they if they consider it to be in the child's best interests, and the child is probably going to go along with that because they want to please their you know their caregiving parents. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. So, how does intercountry and outer country adoption differ? Um, so, domestic adoption or local adoption is when a child's born here, in um, in Victoria or in in, in Australia, and um, is adopted by parents who live here. Intercountry adoption. There's two ways that can happen. One is via domestically arranged programs. So in Victoria, we have um, intercountry adoption Victoria. So um, prospective parents would apply to that agency just as they would apply for a local adoption or a permanent care um, uh, placement. But there's another way um, that's uh, called expatriate adoption, and that's when Australians go overseas, live, work for a period, and then they adopt a child under the local um, adoption laws in that country, and then they uh, seek to bring the child back here to Australia. That's far less regulated, yeah. Uh huh. So, as well as adoption, there's also cases of surrogacy and egg and sperm donation. Is there similarities in experiences regarding identity loss and issues of exploitation for these children? Absolutely. Um, vanish. At Vanish, we see um, a lot of parallels with donor-conceived people, with um, um, surrogacy, obviously, and donor conception usually go together. Some Often the parents seek adoption because they get their names on the birth certificate, regardless of who else is involved in the child's um, parentage, and we see that as a real issue, it's particularly where the family have gone overseas, the parent, the couple have gone overseas and um, uh, been involved in a surrogacy arrangement because there's you've, well you've got the people who are doing doing the surrogacy the women are usually uneducated poor in their own country they might not really realize what what's happening um despite that they're going through you know a so-called reputable agency so the, the the they're already being exploited before we even start the money that gets paid by australian families couples you know doesn't most of it doesn't go to them of course you know commercial surrogacy is pro, is prohibited in most states and the act here it's not um we we have altruistic surrogacy but not the other but it gets so much more complicated when people go overseas and they have maybe an egg donor, maybe a sperm donor, or maybe, you know, an embryo um, that they may have paid for somehow um, and then, you know, come back, seek an adoption 
um, in Australia and that effectively, you know, changes the birth certificate, whatever it might have looked like in the country where the child was born to start with. So for those, we're really worried about those people born of of, um, overseas surrogacy um, to Australian parents because we just really don't know how they're ever going to genuinely be able to find their the people who were involved in their conception and birth. Well, there was a very famous case recently of baby Gammy, who they the, the parents had twins and took the girl but left the boy behind because he had Down syndrome. So is this sort of a fairly common situation when a child has a disability or or isn't the preferred sex? Well, it's I, I would think that was the tip of the iceberg. And I, and I can speak to this from having worked for 12 years in intercountry adoption where during that period um, the numbers of children um, available to adopt from overseas dramatically plummeted like it's plummeted with local adoptions here um, uh, after 1972. Um, And the children that the overseas countries were seeking um, to be adopted by Australian parents were um, mainly disabled children. Um, or children with, you know, high special needs, with additional special needs. And what I know now from my colleagues at Intercountry Adoption is that they've got these quotas from a number of countries for, you know, children who, who need to be adopted or need a, a permanent family. And we, in Victoria, those quotas ca- uh, can't be filled now because there aren't the applicants seeking to adopt those children. So I would think that absolutely where a child's born with a disability through surrogacy or that, that they're very vulnerable. Yeah, I think that um, people sort of think that there isn't um, a lot of children to adopt, but I um, did meet a, a couple many years ago and they adopted a young boy with Down syndrome who had been born in Australia. So is that? did you have um, any contact with Well, again, here? yes. Um, in intercountry adoption, we often, um, well, applicants um, through the local program, they often had trouble finding families for those children through the local program because, children, because most parents want to adopt a healthy infant. Um, so they would often come to the intercountry adoption program, say, if you've got any um, applicants who are approved for a child with additional special needs who might be older or who might have um, you know, Down syndrome or whatever it was. So um, that is the group that is um, that pa- prospective parents um, are least like, you know, less likely. There's only, you know, it's a much smaller proportion of people who are seeking to adopt a child with special needs. So um, with the changes to the adoption policy um, recently um, or lessons learned, hopefully, following a national apology for forced adoptions by Prime Minister Julia Gillard in um, 2013, have there been any any changes? Has this brought around any changes? Well, a number of things were recommended um, um, in association with the apology, um, things like providing um, more post-adoption or counselling for specific people, you know, uh, who were who, whose needs weren't being met in the by the general sort of psych um, counselling services, etc. So there have been there have been some programs um, 
delivered on a short-term basis as a result of that. One of the key recommendations that was recommended was um, integrated birth certificates for um, adopted people who wanted them, adults who wanted them. That That's sort of the one of the 20 recommendations that really hasn't been followed through because it required the states to change their legislation. What, what is an integrated birth certificate? Um, good question. <laughs> um, it, well... It, what it's meant to be is a, a birth certificate that has both the um, adoptive person's biological parents on it and their adoptive parents. Um, but it's quite it's complex to do um, because it's because there's concern about how do we validate um, the identity of the person when there's two sets of parents on it. The question that Vanish would ask is, well, what's the purpose of a birth certificate? Who's it for? Is it meant to be a record of someone's, you know? parentage and the facts of their birth or is it for some other purpose is it a is it a you know a, a, a deed of ownership um what is it you know for what purpose is it used is it or is it meant to reflect the person's identity so so again who should be on it there's lots of questions about that and um in victoria we've certainly raised them in the current um adoption act review by the victorian law reform Law Reform Commission. That's something that we're very strong on. I certainly want my. I want an integrated birth certificate. I've been known by you know the name of Penny Mackerson for fifty three years, but that's not the first name I was given. That's not the people on my birth certificate are my legal parents, but they're not the people who actually um, contributed to my um, you know conception and birth. Yeah, yeah, that's that's quite interesting. A, a friend of mine. Uh, adopted out her daughter when she was quite young and had given her one name and it, it's one thing that quite upset her that the adoptive parents changed her first name so yeah there's there's a lot in a name isn't there yes and and in fact that that's one of the things the lessons learned i mean that's one thing that even now um Queensland's also reviewing its adoption legislation and they're looking at, you know, when to change a name or not. And there's still this feeling that in, in you know, pre-1980s, um, prospective parents were or adoptive parents were encouraged to change their child's name. It was considered a claiming sort of process of owning the child. But it's one of the few things that a child brings with them when they're adopted um, that isn't wiped away so or that, you know, it shouldn't be. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR, 8.55am, and I'm speaking to Penny Mackerson about adoption. Now, a couple of years ago, I met a man who was in his 60s, and even though he'd grown up with very loving parents, he had just discovered that he'd not only been adopted, but his adoptive parents had paid money to the doctor who delivered him. So he'd, he'd really been trafficked. Yes, that that was apparently not uncommon, certainly prior to 1964. That particular Adoption Act in Victoria um, regulated adoption prior to that um, Doctors, lawyers, all sorts of priests, all sorts of people could be involved in arranging adoptions. Um, and as it turns out, there was a lot of concern about money um, being exchanged literally for a child, um, which is indeed trafficking. So the 1964 Act um, authorised really only social workers and, and properly authorised agencies to um, arrange adoptions. 
um, to try and really, yeah, to, to, to stop that practice, to stop those illegal and unethical practices. Um, and it, yes, it's very disturbing for people who might, again, closed practices um, when they finally get their records and find this sort of information out. It's really distressing and, you know, quite traumatising. Yeah, yeah, well, it was, certainly was for him because both both of his um, adoptive parents were deceased and and probably his um, biological parents would have been deceased as well so there there wasn't really any way he could he could sort of track them down or or sort of even know the circumstances surrounding you know his adoption so i mean it, it really did change his life so there's probably there's probably quite a few people out there who had no idea that they have been adopted as well. It's another issue, isn't it? Well, that that's quite an issue. I'm quite close to someone who um, only discovered her adoption um, when she went to get a birth certificate. And it's, and we've got many stories through Vanish of people who've um, gone to get a passport or um, and they've handed over in you know in the days when I was adopted we didn't have a birth certificate it was a sixth schedule which only adopted people had it was like an extract of birth records um, and um, if you didn't know you were adopted and you had a sixth schedule and you took that to someone as your proof of ID sometimes people in the community said oh so you're adopted and the person might not have known so um, there's all been all there's many different and you know various stories and a lot of late discoverers find out in the most you know um, undesirable ways yeah it's quite it's quite an awful thing to do it's you know like lying to a child isn't it and oh, it is pe- lying well it is lying to a child but but to think that you can sort of get away with that lie i mean it must be it must be a terrible burden too for the adoptive parents always fearful that a child will find out i remember hearing about one you know um young man who found out because uh you know there's certain genetic sort of traits you have like being able to curl your tongue and if you can curl your tongue one of your parents must be able to curl their tongues and when he asked his parents they couldn't and that was the moment when he realized that he'd been adopted yes many stories like that yes now, just a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to a gentleman who adopted a baby girl who had been abandoned, abandoned in a orphanage in India. Now, this this baby was in a cot with three other babies, and the circumstances in the orphanage were were very grim. Um, he also financially supported the orphanage, you know, to to help the other the other children left there. But um, look. Sometimes I think there must be some positive sides to adoption, is there? Well, it's it's actually quite fraught adopting children from overseas, um, from orphanages, because, because, because a lot of children aren't orphans, in fact. There are parents, um, and depends on where it is, I mean... In Nepal, in, there's there's countries where there's this huge, you know, volunteer tourism industry where you know unscrupulous people encourage or trick or steal children um, from their parents and use the children to attract um, tourists to give donate money or time to them. Um, they promise that the children will be educated and clothed and fed, and um, and it just doesn't work out that way. It's been 
um, most children in orphanages aren't actually orphans. They've got one or more parents. Those that are genuine orphans usually have extended family who, with a bit of support financially, would be caring for those children. So, you know, the stats are quite, are quite like it's something like 90 plus percent of children overall in orphanages aren't orphans and as I said most of the ones who genuinely are could be supported Um, you know I've got a friend who set up um, an orphanage in um, Cambodia uh, for children who were whose parents had died from AIDS and at one stage very quickly because they're very scrup- they're very scrupulous they don't pay bribes to anybody and they've been ve- you know very above board and very she's a social worker so it's a very good program they offer um they got up to 110 children they were actually only approved for 100 and they were very disturbed by this within 18 months they got it down to four and how they did that was by um following up the extended family network for each child and finding out what that family needed to help support the child. Sometimes it was just information about what AIDS is and how you, you know, how it's transmitted or not, so that they knew that the child either didn't have it or, you know, whatever. Um, sometimes it was a bag of rice a month or a week, or for some it was um, building a room on to accommodate those children because their house was too small, things like that, or providing money for education, for books, school books, school uniforms, that sort of thing. So now they've got four children. The four children that are remaining in the in the centre are um, very disabled children and they're living with um, in like a... I suppose we'd call it a family group home here, but with one, you know, um, unit mother um, and, you know, who cares for those children and they've been with that one mother for years and years. So um, there are models um, that we should support. In general, I I would be... I I would certainly not encourage people to um, uh, support an orphanage unless they knew it was a a properly authorised and properly regulated one um, because I'd be really concerned that um, we were, you know, as Westerners we're perpetuating a system where um, unscrupulous people exploit their own countrymen to obtain children. Yeah, I I suppose a lot of children that are in orphanages, it's just temporary care, but there there was a um, a case of uh, quite a well-known celebrity who uh, adopted a boy from an orphanage because... Well, they thought he was an orphan, but it turned out that his um, mother had died. His father was still alive, and his father used to ride on his push bike, you know, hours once, a few hours every week to visit him. Uh, and then he was adopted, but then the father actually met another woman, and they were probably going to have children themselves. So his circumstances had changed, where he would have been able to care for his child again. Mm. But he made the decision to leave the child with the new adoptive parents because, well, he said that he he felt that the the child would have had a better education and everything being left with them and he was fairly sure that when the child heard the circumstances that he would come back to him. That's an interesting thing. African cultures don't have this concept of adoption like we do here in Western um, countries. They don't realise that it's legally permanent, that it can't be undone and it's very so that's exploitative in itself in, in from my perspective but it is um there are different understandings and you know 
Westerners adopting um, children from African countries, I, I think it's very fraught, very fraught. And, you know, after 12 years having worked in inter-country adoption and the way the numbers dropped off and appropriately so because the the countries that were um, asking us to adopt those children were generally able to find families in their own countries and we would encourage that. As we know with um, Indigenous children here, where they can't remain with their own parents there's a very there's a principle that says they should be placed with extended family and if there's no suitable extended family they should be placed with people in their community um can we could we really imagine sending aboriginal children off overseas to be adopted i mean the thought just you know it blows my mind well did it did actually happen once and uh, i remember the the man's last name was savage with his adoptive parents uh, i think they were they were quite religious and that that went awfully wrong he was up on murder charges wasn't he and and i heard people speaking in in australia about it and they said look if he had have stayed in this country all he had to do was to to go down to a local pub and someone would see him and say oh you know you you're part of of you know, a certain type, a certain um, area, that's where you've come from, just just by his looks. So mm. if he had have stayed in the country, he would have had that support. But being taken over to the States, he had none of that. Well, and, and we, but yet Australians think it's okay to um, adopt children from other countries. I mean, you know, it's you've got to think about it in the same way. And we don't think it's appropriate for our Indigenous children to be adopted overseas, so why would African people think it's appropriate for their children to be, um, you know, African communities to think that it's OK for their children to be adopted by Australians? Yeah, that's a very good point. Well, thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you, Beth. And I've been speaking to Penny Mackison about the complex area of adoption and hope you've enjoyed the program and been given plenty of food for thought.